This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No mai fakarongo mai gita Aotai Fenua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round. Great to have your company. I'm Duncan Smith. We're back with a fresh series of Country Life. And to kick off 2024, Sally, you're cracking into the free-range egg business. Yes, I'm out delivering eggs around Kapiti. We didn't break any either. And Cosmo's at a lamb sale on a farm in Canterbury. The farmer soon had the smile wiped off his face after seeing the depressing prices achieved. And we meet Claire Taylor on a mission to help farmers better tell their stories to the world. But first, let's get things started with a wrap of conditions on farms and orchards around the country. In Northland, the biggest issue is the huge soil moisture deficit. Readings are well below normal levels for the month, and the region's approaching a drought if no more rain falls. Some did fall mid-January, but not enough. However, it's thought if there is a drought, it'll be a short one, which is better than earlier forecasts predicted. Meanwhile, the region's Kumara crop is looking good. Early harvesting starts in a couple of weeks, with volumes ramping up from late February. In the Pukekohe area, there have been light falls of rain since December, but irrigators are still being well used. Onion growers are working seven days a week to transport their dry, mature onions from the fields into the packing sheds. Crop yields are said to be good. As container ships aren't going through the Red Sea, growers are paying an extra $1,500 a container, or $2 per bag of onions, to get the crop to Europe. In Waikato, it's been hot and humid with grass growth rates significantly better than expected. All stock are doing very well and milk production is holding. Maize is outstanding, a perfect summer for it, hot and humid with good spring rain. Yields could be 24 tonnes to the hectare compared to the more normal 20 tonnes. It's also been a cracker season so far for blueberry growers and they've still got plenty of picking to do. They have plenty farmers and kiwi fruit orchardists are having a whale of a time. Rain every four days or so. It's not too dry and not too wet. Gold kiwi fruit looks to be 9 out of 10, green 6 out of 10. Milk production's holding here too. But for avocado growers, it's been a disaster of a season. Returns from the crop will barely cover picking, according to one grower. He says there are real structural issues in the sector, too much fruit, and the once good Australian market isn't so anymore. There's been a good volume of rain in King Country. Grass has been growing like crazy. Sheep are looking good, but lambs need a bit more heat. 
The regions bucking the nationwide very low ewe price last week. Five-year-old ewes in super condition sold for $170 ahead at the Tekuiti sale and $150 at Ongarua. Most ewes have been fetching at least half that. Our farmer contact in Taranaki says nature's been doing its part all summer, so grass growth is good. He just had a helicopter in to spray a top-looking maize crop for northern leaf blight, a disease that's appeared in the past two seasons. The tie-happy Whanganui region's a little drier and more cooked-looking than the central plateau. As is the case on sheep farms nationwide, farmers are trying to hold on to store lambs to get more weight on them and recover some money because the schedule price is abysmal. Lamb prices have halved from two seasons ago. Cash flow is tight and uncertainty in the rural sector is evident. A number of farms are coming onto the market but not selling. In the dairy sector, with earlier predictions of a dry summer, farmers have been offloading their poorer performing cows, and now milk production totals are behind last year. It's a typical summer in Manawatu. Grass levels are generally pretty good for the end of January. The real highlight, again, are the crops of maize, fodder beet, barley, wheat and brassica. Top notch. It's giving sheep farmers the confidence to buy in store lambs because they have feed for them. Turakina is preparing the haggis and the caber for its annual Highland Games this weekend, and they're hoping the good weather will hold. The East Coast kept getting rain all summer, so is comfortable feed-wise. Unlike other regions, crops are a couple of months behind where they should be because a very wet spring delayed planting, but they're growing well now. At last, it's been fine enough for farmers to crack into cyclone repairs in earnest. Hawke's Bay apple orchardists are looking forward to a healthy harvest, which starts, for some, in a few weeks. There's plenty of fruit, and trees still standing seem to be coping with their crop loads. There has been concern that they mightn't cope after last year's destructive cyclone. Grape growers are also having a good run with quality fruit. Yields are back a bit, although not concerningly so at this stage. A farmer and vet in Wairarapa says they're having a normal summer for a change, which means hot days. Plenty of hay and baleage has already been made, thankfully, as pastures are browning off now. With low lamb prices and plenty of grass, some farmers are holding on to store stock for longer. It's very, very dry in Horofenoa, which is unusual. Covers are light and dairy farmers are pulling the trigger earlier than normal and drying light cows off. And they're thinking about rain dancing. As elsewhere, maize is loving the conditions. Across Cook Strait and in the Tasman region, the upcoming apple season is looking promising after the past few which have had hail, heavy rain and labour issues. Fruit size is down a bit in the dry and the crop's lighter, but it hasn't needed as much thinning for blemish or black spot this season. Eastern Marlborough is running a month ahead of normal for conditions and is very dry. Ward and Seddon look bad. Some farmers have had only 15 millimetres since October and it's as dry as the bad drought of 1997. Backcountry areas have had more rain, so aren't as dire. One grower we caught up with says the grape crop is lighter after frosts in October and a poor flowering. But it's not too much of a bother because there's still a lot of unsold wine sitting in tanks from the last harvest. Europe and the UK are cutting back on wine consumption. 
The West Coast copped huge rainfall a week ago. There was some surface flooding, but it didn't appear to cause issues for farmers. In Canterbury, it's hot, windy and pastures have turned brown. Some irrigation schemes are on restrictions due to low river flows and even farms with full irrigation are battling to get enough water to keep growth going. Farmers are dishing out supplementary feed. Drought may be close, although in mid-Canterbury, recent rain has allowed a bit of a catch-up. In fact, the rains temporarily halted the arable harvest, which started well. The fire risk is high, with several vegetation fires recently. Otago's brown, but better than last year, and stock are doing OK here too. Any rainfall that's arrived has been hit and miss. Lambs are gaining good weight, but winter crops that suffered through lack of moisture early on are looking patchy. Central's very dry, but 20 millimetres of rain a couple of days ago has kept winter feed alive. And in Southland, for most, it's been a magical season behind the farm gate, but a different story outside. Again, everyone's hoping lambs pile on the weight to counteract the massive drop in meat prices. Supplementary feed supplies are overflowing for the coming winter. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. Now to our guest this week. So I'm Claire Taylor, I am from Scotland and I'm here visiting New Zealand as part of an Uffield Farming Scholarship and I'm currently travelling all around the world and that's what's brought me to New Zealand and I'm trying to understand how the farming narrative is changing and a lot of that has come from my work as a journalist and for many years trying to understand the growing scrutiny being placed on farmers. When I joined The Scottish Farmer, it was a year after we had Brexit. I joined this paper because I wanted to cover the impact for farmers, what was going to be happening. So I really spent five years covering Brexit and um, changes around trade and, and labour movements. And, and within that, I mean, I covered everything from um, mental health was a big thing that I looked at. I started a campaign when we were there called Mind Your Health. So I, I, I talked to farmers about trying to destigmatise conversations around mental health. So that was a big passion of mine. But really everything from, you know, new policies that were coming in and just general news stories that, that were happening in Scotland and, and wider UK as well. And how are farmers coping after Brexit? Brexit's been very difficult um, for farming. It, it, so, so in Scotland, most farmers didn't vote for, for Brexit, but if you, if other parts of the country, if you move down to England, there was a lot more farmers that were voting for Brexit. And, and the reason for that is we were very much sold as farmers this idea that as we move away from the EU, um, the policy that, that um, farmers are receiving funds from, so the Common Agricultural Policy, at that point it was very outdated. It was stagnating development, innovation in farming. You were being paid for how much land you own. So a lot of farmers really wanted to move away and develop a policy that was bespoke to their country. And in Scotland, England, Northern Ireland and Wales, it's devolved policy. So it was a real opportunity to actually think, well, can we create a policy that can really favour our own conditions? So... Farming did think, as a lot of farmers thought, this could be a good opportunity. However, you know, now we're here in 2023, we still, we're not really far down the track. We haven't created a policy in post-Brexit. Farmers have had huge uncertainty and it's been coupled by lots of challenges post-Covid and obviously the war in Ukraine supply challenges. So really it's been the uncertainty of not knowing the next policy has been a real problem for farming because we were promised that we'd have a continuation of funding for so many years but we don't know what will happen in two, three years and it's, it's causing huge distress currently. With free trade agreements negotiated with Australia and New Zealand, how is that affecting farmers? So it's an interesting one, and this is actually part of the reason why I'm here in New Zealand. Um, 
So the main farming union in the UK has been very, very critical of trade deals of Australia and New Zealand. And they very much sold this idea that New Zealand farmers, Australian farmers could threaten our producers. And it's this idea that's being peddled in newspapers particularly is that lower standard produce um, is going to sweep our shelves and farmers here are going to be put out. So a part of that fear is because farmers have huge regulations they face back home, whether it's on certification for their products, the input costs are particularly high. And I think farmers in the UK often think that we are the only ones facing high input costs and, and nobody else around the world has labour challenges or high input costs. So um, there is a fear that, you know, we're going to have higher volumes of products coming in when farmers here are struggling. But this, again, is also because supermarkets hold so much power in the UK and farmers get very little at the farm gate. So they are, they are really nervous about any sort of change coming in that could undermine them. And it's being fuelled by the papers and by the union as well. And there has been a certain amount of pushback against um, places like New Zealand saying, as you said, lower standard food coming in. What are they saying about New Zealand produce? So it's a really interesting question because I don't think a lot of farmers who actually know about the, the standards or the qualities of what, what's produced in New Zealand. And those that have been to New Zealand, because it's very popular in Scotland, that a lot of farmers have actually spent six months to a year in New Zealand and they're huge advocates of what's happening. But it's often, we're very much so this idea, and I know this isn't specific to New Zealand, that other farms around the world aren't as strict when it comes to certain practices in abattoirs, when it comes to hormone beef, that, that sort of thing. So and people tend to sort of blanket brush everybody into one box. So New Zealand farmers aren't distinguished from um, Australian farmers, from American farmers at times as well. So I just think there's this, where does it come from? I think it's quite irrational, so it's hard for me to really understand it. But a lot of it is it sells headlines in the papers to really say that there's going to be poor produce coming in. And that's really just been perpetuated and that cycle has been constant. And I suppose this is where your study comes in, where you talk mm -hmm. about the narratives that yeah. farmers are putting out there, the stories that they're telling about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> what are you actually finding out as you go around the, the, the country, around New Zealand? Are farmers here telling a good story about themselves? Are they, are they able to get their message across? Well, so I will be honest and say I've only been here a few days, so I'm not, I couldn't really answer for the last few days, but I have been in New Zealand before. And when I was last here, I felt there was a huge emphasis on storytelling. And even that went through not just from the farmers I'd spoken to or seen on social media who'd been particularly active in, in sharing their messages, but even through to the branding on packages and supermarkets. And that's something I really love is to understand how are you selling your story to the end consumer? Because that's really what matters. And I've, I've noticed that even, you know, in the last couple of days going around and seeing some of the beautiful packaging and, you know, the images that you have um, of the grass-fed cattle and beautiful rolling pastures. I mean, these sort of scenes and images of New Zealand and they're everywhere. People are really sort of supporting that. So it's been wonderful to see that. I'm good. That's what I want to find out while I'm here is how are farmers storytelling? Are they engaging with people like yourself? Are they speaking to the media? Are they sharing their story? Are they going direct to consumers in terms of selling and whether it's direct meat boxes, that sort of thing? Are they engaging with their local government, um, with the national government in terms of whether it's protest potentially because they're, they're unhappy of what's happening in farming or are they just having holding meetings going to conferences I want to understand how they're engaging and, and a lot of that is through storytelling. And how do you think this study when you've completed it will help farmers? So this is a really important thing of what I'm trying to do and it is a journey it's changing but I what I want to do is to empower farmers to be able to be their own narrators of their own story because I think there's wonderful journalists I think there's um 
It's a lot of people telling the story of farmers and doing it very well, but there's a lot of people who are telling the wrong stories. And really, it has to be farmers who are the most authentic advert for themselves. So I would love to bring examples from here in New Zealand. I've been to Zimbabwe. I've been to South America. I've been to Japan. I want to bring examples of where farmers are really being able to control the narrative so nobody else is writing it for them. But they're doing it, um, and the, for me, how do, how do I get farmers to engage with that is by explaining that this can also be really profitable for your business. Because it's not just about you know spending all this time on storytelling if you're not gonna make money from it. So it's gotta be profitable at the end of the day. So I'm bringing examples of where here's a farmer who's been really successful with building their brand, building their consumer relationships and making money, and it's all for good storytelling. So that tends to be where farmers will think, okay, this is something I wanna do. <laughs> Nuffield scholar and farming journalist Claire Taylor. The Nuffield Farming Scholarships Trust is a charity which sends people overseas to learn from others and to help share ideas for the benefit of agriculture. Now we're off to an auction at Tom and Rachel Ferguson's Hill Country property at Dalethorpe near Sheffield. When Cosmo Kentish Barnes turned up, Tom was busy in the yards, so he nabbed Tom's father Gary to find out what's on offer. We're winning all the years and having an on-farm sale. So, um, we're selling everything. Some lambs will be killable and some lambs will be stores. And with a bit of luck, someone will come up and buy them. Is this a sale that you hold every year? Yeah, yeah, every year. And we're combined with a couple of properties over at Springfield to make it worthwhile for the buyers to come. So we're just selling 3,000 lambs. And um, Brooksdale over at Springfield have 4,000. And then there's another place might have 2,500. Tell me about the farm here. My old man came back from the Second World War and, and got a block and um, I'm the second generation and I added to it a bit and then my son's added to it a bit so now it's 860 hectares. Have you changed the farm since you've been here? Have you made any adjustments to no, it? No, no, all I've done is plant and shelter, just plant and shelter and broke a wee bit of country in and it's just a foothills property, third steep hill, third medium hill and a third flat and yes. a 40 inch rainfall and run by people who like it quite life. The farm is at the end of the road. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Anyone who comes up here is either an idiot or lost. <laughs> so if you carried on up the valley here, where would you end up? Well, you, if you go into the a property next door, you end up at the headwaters of the Hawkins, where it starts. Or if you veer slightly left, you'll end up at the headwaters of the Selwyn, north branch of the Selwyn. And we actually mountain bike around the sheep quite a bit because uh, we hate noise and we don't like motorbikes and stuff. And talking about biking, you yourself are a former world time trial champion. Well, I just waited till I was 70 till all the opposition were dead and then it was much easier to win. <laughs> So you were representing New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. I'd been competing a couple of times in a younger age group and I think the best I got was fifth, so I knew I was in with a rough chance. Where has your cycling taken you? Well, that took me to Poland, but France, Austria, Spain, well, Australia, of course, everywhere, really, yeah. And did did COVID put a stop to that? Uh, yeah, well, well, next year I was going to defend my title in Canada, but that put an end to that, yeah. Mm. yeah. So are you still planning to uh, to go to the World Champs? Yeah, well, ma- ma- not this year coming, but um, maybe the next year I would if I'm still alive. Yeah, Because it's a bit funny, the World Champs. They only let you compete if you're alive. <laughs> uh...
And so when did you hand the reins over to Tom, your son? I can't remember. That would be 15, 20 years ago, I suppose. Yeah, he was a stock agent and then he he come home. So I had all the accounts in a sugar bag. So I just handed it to him. Nice and easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really pleased because... The age of computers arrived, and oh god, you know, I'd rather be digging a post hole than doing that. <laughs> so, do I yell out to Tom and get him to come back here to finish this off? Tom, come here. <laughs> Normally, you'd say, Bugger off, you silly. <laughs> Hi, Tom. How many farmers are you expecting to turn up today? Oh, well, it's a bit of a lottery, really, but, yeah, it depends on what they're up to and if they get out of bed or not, they're still not still on holiday. But, um, yeah, sometimes you get a crowd here of, of 40, 50, but a lot of the people were gawkers and go for a look around in the yeah. car. And, yeah. And so what sort of lambs have you got? We're Romney, crossbred lamb, uh, North Island bred. So we've got some whoppers down there that'll kill out at 22, 23 k's. They're good lambs, you know, they'll be 50 k's sort of thing, and then we're down to the... Probably the small lambs at around about 23 or 4, 5 k's. Why do you sell them now in, in, in the middle of summer? Yeah, well, it's just we've got near irrigation up here and if it gets dry, I like to put more, more of my, um, my grass into my ewe lambs for next year and my ewes for the following year. So we just hope that the cropping farmers, have, um, they're ready to get a bit of harvest off and uh, they want to stock up with lambs and hopefully half the lambs here will go to the freezing works. The bigger ones go to the freezing works yep. and the smaller yep. ones will be, what, holding... Yeah, they'll go around Canterbury and... Holding lands. Yep, and, you know, there's good forward stores there that someone will be able to take home in six weeks. They'll be able to make, when they're down there in the country in the irrigation, they'll be able to make whoppers out of them in no times. And are prices holding up at the moment for lambs? I mean, what are you expecting uh, well, to I get? Well, lamb prices um, bloody awful, to be, uh, to be fair. Um, so last year I averaged 107. Yeah, I'll be lucky if I do 90 this year, I'd say. Year before, might have been 127. Yeah. So, we've yeah, we've come down a lot. And I've just got to take it and carry on for next year. So, I mean, it's, it's not going to be brilliant. Um, you know, we'll lose money this year, but anyway. Oh, so, you'll lose money from these lambs? Well, we in, in, a, in a, the end of our financial year, yeah, we will. Yep, yep. And tell me about the wool clip. Uh, well, we sh- obviously share our ewes and, and share our ewe lambs and that, but... Last year, I think it was going to be $1.40, OK? So it's, it, it doesn't really pay for the shearers now, no. It looks like it's really nice wool. Beautiful wool, yeah, yep. Just a shame that no-one's invented anything to do anything with because we love nylon carpet, apparently. <laughs> What's the micron of these uh, uh, We're reasonably strong here. It's probably um, the ewes the are 36, 7 micron, and the lambs will be 29, probably, micron. So... Oh, I sell it to a private buyer there, and he auctions it. A lot of it goes to England and India, and yeah, it's a real byproduct now. Yes. Yeah, that's a real shame because it is good quality product, and there's nothing more green about that. But that's what it is. We're not, I'm not going to. Don't know what I can do to change it, but. So are sheep your main income here? Yeah. Yep. Yep. You've got to have cattle to clean up the rough stuff. So um, a few few cattle, but mainly sheep. Yeah. And uh, what else is happening on farm at the moment? Oh, so this is the major, and then tomorrow I'll get my old ewes in, and I'll mouth them out, because it's too cold up here in the winter, so we keep our flock young, so I'll um, mouth out the five-year-old ewes, and the ones with a good mouth will go down to Sheffield Youth here in um, three weeks' time. Mouthing means checking the condition of a ewe's teeth to determine her age. (laughs) Now, leaning over a pen is Greg Shearer, a livestock agent from Fairley in South Canterbury. I've got clients who are after the heavier end lamb and also got clients that are looking for sort of like a 25 kilo lamb, something to take through. Yeah. 
ideally, how many lambs would you like to buy today? Um, about a unit load, and the type of lamb I'm after, it's equivalent to about a thousand. What are your first impressions? Um, the lambs are, are good, young, healthy lambs. But I've got buyers that uh, don't want ram lambs or crips, so there's a few ram lambs up there, so they're probably not a lamb that suits me, but they are tidy lambs, yeah. Yes. The lambs have been put into different pens. Is it based on, on weight? Uh, yes, yeah, size. 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 Which, which is weight. Size yeah. is weight. Um, so they've been high-drafted. So if you look at them from the top pen up the top, there's a variance all the way down. They're quite calm lambs, these, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Like, they're probably, probably ready to be weaned. Yeah. Now the auction is just about to start and utes are still rolling into the farmyard. Right, come on, come on everybody, down to pen one. Right, there we go, there's the cream of the crop, pen one. 87 booming lambs caught beautifully, put your hand on those, eh? They've got a real loin to the nose. Right, you might have a though, they're what, they're 128 on those, 28, 25 and away we go. 120, who's got it? I got 14 to sell them. I got 14 now. Oh, but 14, that'll be 14, that'll be 14, that'll be 14, 16. I got 16, that'll be for those. Oh, 18. I got 18 now. 18, that'll be 19, 19, 19. Hazlitt stock agent Phil Manera is today's auctioneer. Well, I've been with um, Hazlitt Limited for 13 years and I service the Melvin, Darfield, West Melton districts. We're having an on-farm lamb sale here today for Tom and Rachel Ferguson at Baldoon. It's an annual sale. It's been happening for about uh, 14 years, I think. So we uh, weans as lambs this morning and we draft them all up and size them up and they get penned up and, and advertised and hopefully repeat buyers come and um, have a bit of a competition and buy some good well-bred lambs. But... Um, yeah, he does a good job, he presents them well, they're all crutched and nice and healthy and yeah, spends a bit of money on genetics and, and produces something that people want, fast growing, nice healthy lambs, yeah. Do you think Tom will be happy with the prices achieved today? No, probably not, but but he's a realist and, and the prices aren't as good as they were last year and, and unfortunately that's the way markets go, they go up and they go down and, and it's nothing new to him, he's been farming all his life and he just uh, produces as many lambs as he can to a high standard and and yeah, he doesn't set the market or the price on the day, unfortunately, and I don't either, but we try and get our best for our vendors. But, um, you know, prime lambs are under $6 a kilo now, so it is a bit of a tough go at the moment, but they're a resilient lot, these farmers. They're good at what they do, and they'll stay positive and, and get stuck in and carry on, hopefully. On the other side of the sheep yards is the old shearing shed. Inside are several woolen bales, a wool press and some retro armchairs that have seated many a shearer. Tom's mum, Pat, is getting some refreshments ready. We've had some good times in here and we've worked very, very hard in here also. And this is where you make the tea and coffee and you've got some food put on for, for, the, agents. for the agents. They just have a, just a thank you sort of thing and... So they can have sandwiches and that with their beers, which is important. Mm -hmm. mm. Tell me about your background. How long have you been farming? Well, I was brought up on a farm in Port Levy. My dad, mum, my dad bought the farm in 1936, and he never got married to his 50s, so he was quite old when I was born. And um, so I was brought up in Port Levy, and I went to school in Christchurch. Then I married Gary in 73, and I've been out here ever since. So I've always been on a farm. Now, towering above us here in the wool shed is a very old stag's head. Tell me about that. 
Yes, well, my dad shot that. He was a, before he bought the farm in Port Levy, he was a rabbiter and deer colour. And that's how he got the money to buy his farm in Port Levy. And that he shot that. He had two of them originally. And I got one and my brother got one. And he shot it and mounted everything himself. And Dad would be 124 years this year. So he would have been in his 20s. So it's 100 years old, isn't it? Still keeping watch over the what eyes, happens here in the yeah, watershed. Yeah, the eyes are falling out there. <laughs> With the auction now over, Tom and Gary get the yards ready for the stock trucks that will pick up the sold lambs after lunch. Tom, not a huge turnout. No, not a huge turnout, no, no, no. As long as there's more than one, I suppose, to make it an auction. I guess people are all feeling the squeeze uh, a bit. And uncertainty of what's, where the lamb price is going to go to, I suppose. So, yes. Yeah, it's going to be a tough year. Yep. <laughs> Do you want to talk to the bank manager or me? <laughs> you have predicted that you weren't oh, yeah, going to Yeah, I knew it was going to be bad. I mean, it is what prices. it is. The schedule's low and it's just sheep farming as we know it at the moment. So, anyway, we're at full clearance, so they went and, yeah. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty out there, especially if it doesn't rain again. And uh, yeah, what do you love about farming? What keeps you here? Oh, I just like the lifestyle and the fact that I'm my own boss and we do what it's our own choice, our own freedom, what we want to do on the farm. Apart from the regulations, obviously, but and you're out in fresh air and I've got no one really annoying me. And um, I, I don't know many sheep farmers actually do it to get rich. It's a thing that we just do and enjoy. But we do need a bit more income to, to keep us going, you know. There's a matter amount of people now that, uh, you know, wives are all off working off farm and, and all that. And um, I do extra work myself just to get a bit of pocket money. And so it's not all beer and skittles, yeah. What do you do off farm? Uh, I work over the local sale yards. Every week I go and do a day over there sorting sheep out and that. And it gets me off the farm so I don't go mad, see other people and have a yarn. Yeah. Uh, kids are all old enough now and they seem to be ready. Um, you have to spend a bit more money on them, so uh, money's got to come from somewhere. You can say that again. Tom Ferguson at the lamb auction that was held on his farm last week. Cosmo was also talking to his mum and dad, Gary and Pat, and livestock agents Greg Shearer and Phil Manera. To see photos and videos from the day, go to the Country Life webpage. My name is Sarah Maxwell. I am a farmer from Fielding in the Manawatu, and you're listening to Country Life on RNZ National. Next, I'm taking you to rolling hill country in Manawatu to meet a couple in the paddock-to-plate business. Not only do they produce free-range eggs, they also have the eggs and other locally made food delivered direct to their customers. I'm uh, Scott Jimison and I'm from uh, Local Food New Zealand. And I'm Emma Poole, but soon to be Emma Jimison, and I'm also from Local Food New Zealand. We are in Halcombe. Um, Halcombe's about 15 minutes outside of uh, Fielding in the Manawatu, and um, on a lifestyle block, which is about 35 hectares, um, where we've built up a chicken uh, business on top of my parents' land. Just walking down from our little barn down to the chicken shed, just a little mosey down the driveway. 
you can see the barn from from home. Yes, yeah, yeah. So very communal here. So Scott's parents live at the end of the driveway and we're just a little further down and then the chicken's a bit further down from there. Now this used to be a deer farm, didn't it? I can see the, the tall fences. Yeah, yeah, it was essentially uh, built as a deer farm. I think it was in the 60s or 70s. Uh, my parents ran deer on this property uh, and then after the, the market not going too well, they decided to um, shut down the deer and use it as um, a heifer grazing for quite a few years. And then um, that's where I've come in and turned it into chickens. <laughs> and when did the business start? Uh, so we started the business uh, in 2016. Uh, we started with 500 um, and um, we used the original deer shed that was on the property um, as a structure and we built nesting boxes with plywood that was from the deer shed walls and, and things like that. So um, that's how we, how we started. On eight. I can see a couple of chickens down there. She rounds them up to bring them back for us. So you do get the odd escapee from that that paddock. Any any gap in the fence, they'll be out. But the good thing, unlike sheep and cattle, they hate the dark. So when it's dark, they go straight back into their house at night. So we don't really have to worry about that too much. And we're approaching this um, large shed. And how many chickens have you got in here, Scott? Uh, so there's 5,000 in this in this shed. Uh, this was built in 2019, uh, which is my first big, um, I suppose, in investment into the into the business world. And it's um, fully automated um, with uh, automatic feeders and water and uh, nesting boxes and conveyor belts and. It was, a, it was a big purchase for me. Quite a step up from the 500 bird shed up the top where we've just come from. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. It was. There was a lot of, um, I suppose, the first three or four years in, in business, it was a lot of just um, going around in circles and we felt like we were just standing still and, you know, not really getting further ahead. But at some point it just seemed to, the ice cube melted to a point where it, it took off and um, yeah, we were able to expand and um, it hasn't slowed down since, I suppose. Should we get out of this chilly wind? Yeah. and yeah. Uh, come on or two wind. <laughs> Scott and Emma's local food brand offers other products too, but organic free-range eggs are the mainstay of the business, aiming to take produce direct from the farm gate to the consumer. And it's a truly family affair. I'm in the van with uh, Craig Jibison, Scott's dad, and yeah. we're, we're off delivering eggs. Off to del- deliver eggs, and we're round to... I've forgotten, got, forgotten the address, but the map will tell us. And we're just, it's just up here. We've just come to a little cul-de-sac here in Paraparaumu. I'll just hop out and I'll... Fortunately, the van's only got one sliding door on this side. One tray of eggs. One tray of eggs. One tray of 30. And we just put them by the front door. Yeah, I'll give all you knock, just let them know they're there, then we're off again. So do you break many eggs? You have the odd whoopsie. You know, like if you break too suddenly or someone pulls out in front of you or um, you might, you've got to be very careful how they're stacked in the back. Um, there was one, one day that there was a sea of eggs in the back and I was just 
had to go to the supermarket and buy copious amounts of paper towels and whatnot, and I wasn't, um, yeah. Scrambled eggs. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, not the, not a happy chappy. That's a great service for them. It's delivered to the back door with a smile. Yeah, do you get good. to chat to your customers? Quite often you do, yeah. You get to chat. There was one lady I talked to before. She was, was um, Scott, Scott and Emma were married last weekend and so she was all keen to know about the wedding and, and how well it went. And yeah, Quite a few of them have been asking about the wedding. Yeah. Pretty cool, isn't it? So oh, it, it's, yeah. it's kind of a connection with your customers. Yeah, yeah, that's no, great. You just have a bit of chat and you get to know them. and um, Some you never see, but some you, you see all the time. So... It's amazing at um, all sorts of people that get the eggs, and you know you can go th through the you know the flash areas and the not so flash areas, and yeah, it's just quite yeah even. We'll leave Craig to it on the Carpety Coast and head back to the farm near Halcombe, where Emma can be found collecting the eggs when she's not working at her other job as a radiographer. The girls lay the well, the hens lay their eggs in their nesting boxes and they're all on slanted slope floors. They'll roll down onto a conveyor belt that's in the middle of the shed, and then we're standing at the end of the shed um, picking, the, picking those eggs up. So it just keeps them nice and clean and makes our job a lot easier. And this is a good job for you because yes. you're not that keen on chickens. No, no, chickens were never... I mean, just in birds in general, I'm not a fan, so I'll deal with the eggs and the paperwork, but Scott's definitely on the chickens. <laughs> It's lucky Scott doesn't mind chickens. There are plenty of them on the other side of the wall. And weirdly, given the cacophony of clucking you're about to hear, he needs to let them know when he's coming in. So you've got to knock three times just so the birds don't get a fright. It just, um, yeah, it's one of those things. <laughs> Yeah, so there's 5,000 uh, inside this shed, um, split into half, so we've got 2,000 on the right side of the shed, uh, 2,500 on the right side of the shed, and 2,500 on the left side of the shed, so... Um, but there, they're, they're free to come and go outside. Um, they come in about this time to have food and water, and then um, in the afternoon they'll all go out again before the sun goes down. They spend most of the time outside, probably um, from 9am till... Yeah, 11 a.m. and come in for lunch and then head back outside again until um, the sun goes down. So why chickens? Well, after some travel and a stint dairying, Scott was keen to be his own boss. But there were a few twists and turns before this free-range egg production business really took off. As the chickens were growing, I was, I was thinking the entire time that, you know, as I grow... Um, the egg business, I'm going to have to learn how to sell those eggs at some point. Um, so I thought, well, the best initiative would be to get a job in sales and I could use that income to put into my business and then in turn I'd, I'd learn something as well. And a job actually um, popped up in, in the local town fielding for selling cars. And I thought, well, that'd be a great uh, business to get into. Because when you're selling stuff, you're, you're negotiating, um, you know, you're learning how to talk to people, customer service, there's a broad range of skills that you're learning. And I think a lot of my mates thought I was crazy and a bit weird at the time to get into selling cars. 
yeah, every day was was challenging and a bit different, but it was definitely worth it. And I'd, I'd strongly suggest anyone wanting to get into their own business, go sell cars for a couple of years and, and you'll fast track a degree. <laughs> Is it tough? Yeah, yeah, it's tough and you've got to have... Um, and like all the financing, you learnt all that stuff too, eh? Yeah, learning how to, how to um, yeah, sell finance and, and write finance contracts and things like that. When I was dairy farming, I wasn't getting any exposure to any of the actual core business um, stuff just cupping cows and you just went out there every day but and yeah. you're in touch with your consumer more yeah exactly so I learned a, a lot of the power and and people people really want to deal with um, people that they know and they trust um, and a lot of the, the lessons that I learned from selling cars is the reason why um, McVerry Crawford Motors was was strong business in our small town is because they really keep in touch with their customer base and um, they were very loyal and whatnot so I in turn, I learned that and, and portrayed it in, into eggs and um, there was a stage there where I was selling eggs in, in my office while I was selling cars and essentially it was that whole thing of getting eggs and cars at the, the same time. Did you time. pop a tray of eggs in the car <laughs> yeah, when you sold yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I definitely did, did a few negotiations where I had to give away a couple of uh, free trays of eggs. So. <laughs> it was not easy getting the finance together for this business, was it? No, no, they, they do say like zero to one in building a, a business is the hardest and then one to ten it's coasting from there and I think that is that is very true to a, to a certain degree. Zero to one for me was essentially coming back from England with nothing to my name. I'd spent it all on <laughs> travelling and, and um, living the dream. But I came back and um, was driven enough to want to get from zero to one and nothing was going to get in my way. Yeah, when I first started, I, I presumed you could go in and just get a loan from the bank and they would give you whatever money you wanted and you'd go and chase your dreams and, and life was great. But I sort of got laughed out of the door, I think, after the first um, meeting with them when they sort of didn't believe what I said I was going to do. And so I had to really um, think deep about how I was going to do it. And I think the key there for me looking back was um, when you get those sort of obstacles appear in your life you just got to really sit back and think about it and it's it's more how you're going to do this next step not you know just give up and, and walk away were there yeah. moments when you wanted to walk away yeah 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 it, it happens um often in business i think anyone that owns a business will, will agree with me there um that there's a lot of down days that you're thinking what are you doing this for there's also a lot of ups in, in those days as well and that you feel like you've just fulfilled something that's bigger than yourself you know the big thing that I, when I think back and reflect on everything to this point, was um, having a lot of support from my parents. Yeah, when I started, without their support, I just yeah, wouldn't have coped, essentially. I was dairy farming, you're, you're starting at 5am and getting home at 6 and you've still got chickens to sort out and things like that. So my father actually took a lot of the brunt of the day-to-day operations and a lot of that time we were unviable. I knew it was working, we just had to scale it. But yeah, mum and dad, still to this day, they, they help out a lot. And without them, yeah, we really wouldn't have been able to achieve what we have to this point. And dad's still working for us um, now, delivering eggs. And um, he's got great customer service. <laughs> yeah. He's got great chat when he's dropping eggs off. People love Craig. Yeah. yeah he's very personable. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Here's the eggs. Well, thank okay. you. Have a good Beautiful. one. Great day. <laughs> thank you very right. much. What's your name? Charlene. Charlene. You've got a tray of, of quite a few eggs there. Yep. They get delivered every week and nice and fresh. I also get my mum eggs delivered to her. You'd, you'd rather get them this way than going to the supermarket? Yeah, because I know they're fresh. What are you going to make with those um, eggs? We have scrambled eggs, omelettes, bacon, whatever. Yeah. See ya. See ya. 
This is a little bit like returning to the old days. Yeah, it is. It is. Like when I was a young, young guy at, at college, just, you used to get up at four o'clock in the morning doing the milk runs and pushing the trolleys around the town. And, yeah, it's Did getting, you think you'd be doing that again? No, and... no. <laughs> no, I was a little bit fitter then. <laughs> COVID was a real kickstart for your business, wasn't it? Yeah, so we um, set up local food in 2019 and, and the idea was to um, start distributing um, our own products to um, cafes and restaurants and, and to people's houses and, and things like that. Um, and it was coasting along and we were sort of getting getting our head around the business and, and starting off and then COVID happened and we went into lockdown and, and people really wanted to order stuff online because they had no choice essentially. So we yeah strapped on the helmet and um, yeah just uh, started promoting ourselves on Facebook and more and more and um, we built up this big customer base from home deliveries while all the cafes were shut down and um, yeah, it, was a, it was a busy first lockdown. We were, um, we were pretty stressed out. I lost a few years off my life. Scott and Emma have big plans for their local food brand. Local Food NZ is essentially an online farm shop. We aim to connect whole foods um, that are produced in New Zealand direct with the consumer. So we have um, free-range eggs. Olive oil is produced locally through olives as well. Uh, we have honey, which they've got some hives from down under honey. Their honey's on our, our property. What else have we got at the moment, Emma? <laughs> you take over. This is probably more my area of expertise. <laughs> Scott deals with the chickens and I deal with the local food brand. But, um, and then we've just taken on some asparagus. And so one of our neighbours, she contacted us and said, I've just taken on a runoff block and it has asparagus on it and kind of like, what do we do? How do we sell it? So it was awesome and it's fresh and delicious. So, yeah, um, Anna Satinovich and her family pick it and drop it off once a week and we sort of pre-order it. Um, and we can distribute it right down to Wellington. Um, we do kapiti. I suppose before, even before I met Scott, I was a really big believer in, like, investing in your food. Like, you've got to invest in your food now, otherwise you'll pay for it later. Um, so then obviously when I met him and he sort of had this local food business, it was, yeah, it was perfect, eh? So That's what yeah, drew you to him. The car salesman <laughs> and the chicken farmer, not so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so then um, direct to market, people know where the food's coming from. They can sort of have a connection to like how much work goes into it and, you know, just how, do, how does asparagus picked and things like that or how the eggs are made. And so having that connection with your food, the farmers that produce it, and I think growing up, people have lost that connection with the farmers that produce their food, like how much effort goes into it and how they're really striving to produce a really good product. Logistically, um, it must be a bit of a nightmare getting all these products out yeah. all over the place. And you're going further afield now. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, we've got really awesome staff members, and without them we couldn't make this work, but we've got two delivery drivers, Craig, which is Scott's dad, and Mike, who's a local from Halcombe. Um, and, yeah, they sort of take control of that. They load up their vans four days a week and head down to yeah, a couple of days in Wellington, Kapiti, Manawatu. Um, and then on a Tuesday, I just started sending out some courier orders. Yeah, we've had a few requests in some small towns, Tomaranui, Havelock North, Paihiatua. They go to another small like, like greengrocer or butchery, and people can come and buy them from there. And they've, um, they've put in an order so they know their yes, order is there. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's just, like you said, it all just helps. It brings people into their shops. Um, it still has our logo on it. They still know the story. Um, and it's just trying to get people to know where their food comes from. You yeah. don't want to go into supermarkets? Uh, not at this stage. The paperwork is pretty intense, but 
we like the flexibility where we have control and we know who our customer is. Um, I suppose the, the supermarket's not clipping that middle ticket. What other products do you want to bring on? Oh, I mean, like you said, as long as it's locally produced, high quality, um, at this stage it has to be practical. We are delivering to home delivery. Sometimes they're sitting outside people's homes. Um, so products that are, you know, a bit more hardy that can sort of sit outside for an hour or so. So maybe some more vegetables. Um, but yeah, we're always sort of interested in looking into some more products. You're open to people yeah, contacting you? I mean, I'm supporting my own family. My own family's sheep and beef, so I'd love a meat product. But that comes with some complications. But yes, definitely uh, even a raw milk or a dairy product. Those core products that are New Zealand produced and, you know, actually add some value to your nutrition. How big is this business going to get? Because you have got other barns, haven't you, located near the coast? Yeah, yeah. So we um, have invested into, into a, another poultry farm, which has just given us a lot more um, scope to expand. Yeah, well, we want to actually make an impact on our community, but also support others, like, like you said, our neighbours or um, Gay and Haim across the river with their olives. Like, we really want to make an impact, not just in our community, but throughout New Zealand, that get back to knowing your farmers, knowing where your food comes from, whether that's with us with just eggs, you never know, we might move into something else, but building a scalable business with the eggs to start off with mm. and then going from there, really. In our total facility, we've got about 40,000 um, laying birds at the moment and every day's a bit different, but, yeah, we hope to just take it step by step, essentially. We see that even with the local food vision, it would be nice to grow it to a size where we could really support what's important to us, like... We love, um, you know, running and cycling and supporting, like, local teams. Like, get to the point where we've, we're big enough that we can actually really give back to our community and mm. even, like, produce and supply some charities with food. And Yeah, getting into a position where, where we're in a position to give back is probably the most important um, mm. thing to us. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> when do you get time to do the running and the biking? Oh, we oh, squeeze well, it in there. Yeah, yeah, this morning at 6am, yeah. um, we've got one in. So, well, you went uh, first at yeah. 6, and then yeah. I did some work, and then I went at 7. So, but, and what's um, the next event coming up? Uh, well, because we're getting married in a couple of weeks, you, December's sort of usually like Ironman territory, but we might have to postpone that one. So mm. um, oh, we just love a bit of trail running. Uh, maybe it's actually a local event in Hunterville in February that we might do. Um, but yeah, we always sneak off to try and do one down south normally in the snow. Hey, yeah. in, in the winter when things are a bit more quiet. So Obviously yeah. a very busy couple. And when I visited in December, a wedding coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So time to leave them to it. But not before a final look at the chooks, where it's anything but quiet. You see, if you turn around now, they're all just start following you down. Yeah, they're, they're a unique species. Um, they've all got their own little personality. They're quite inquisitive and, um, yeah, like I really enjoy farming them. So they have this large paddock to roam around in. Yeah. Do they like being outside? Um, they're, quite, they're quite fussy. They like overcast days. Um, the sunshine sort of freaks them out a little bit. Birds of prey, they feel a bit unsafe when it's really sunny. So, um... If it's really hot and sunny, they'll be under the trees, but um, dusk, they love dusk, don't they? Mm. They'll be all out grazing and scratching around. And they don't like wind too much either, eh? They'll be often hiding under the trees and stuff if it's really windy too. Yeah. Yeah, they're just, you know, they're females, they're fussy. <laughs> yeah. They don't want the rain. Yeah, no. They're like us, they're girls, yeah. 
Emma Jimmison and Scott Jimmison outside their barn of laying hens near Halcombe in Manawatu. You also heard from Scott's dad, Craig Jimmison. Check out the photos and story on our webpage. Well, that's all we've got time for today, folks. Don't forget you can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast and you can find it on any podcast platform. Atera Wiki. Catch you next time. Bye now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.